Welcome to episode 16 of Make Me Watch It, the podcast where you, the listener, can vote and tell me which movie I need to watch next. This month we're doing a slightly different format. Instead of focusing on a single title, I'm actually going to be summarizing a number of titles. As Bureau 42 readers know, we've got list challenges this year, so challenging yourself to watch 52 movies that fall into various categories, or watch 52 episodes of TV, listen to 52 podcasts, and so forth. So this month I'm going to do a summary of where I'm at so far in our 2018 movie viewing challenge. So I've got... 52 movies in the challenge, and so far I have watched 32 of them. Some of them are first-time viewings, some of them are not. The preference is for first-time, but if I was watching a movie with my fiancé for her first time viewing it and it met the criteria, I counted it. I've also been organizing the movies that I've seen in a letterboxed list. I've been using letterboxed a lot in the past year. Anyway, without further ado, I'm going to run through a quick summary of the 32 movies I've seen so far this year. And I've got them sorted in a letterbox list from the lowest scores I've assigned to the highest scores I've assigned. So we're starting with the worst of the bunch. There's actually two films where I gave them half a star out of five. The directed by Roger Corman or Ed Wood entry is The Wasp Woman. This is 1959 and directed by Roger Corman. It is not a great film in any stretch of the imagination. A cosmetics queen develops a youth formula from jelly taken from queen wasps, and then the side effect is that it's giving her more and more wasp-like attributes. 73 minutes and just not good in any way, shape, or form. It's public domain, so it's easy to find, I don't recommend it unless you're in like a Mystery Science Theater 3000 kind of mood. They did cover it, in fact, so you could watch their coverage. The average letterbox user score somehow is 2.4 out of 5. The other one, half a point, which is also a movie that has been featured on Mystery Science Theater 3000, is The Beast of Yucca Flats. I use that for my horror entry in the franchise. It was directed by Coleman Francis. And the most interesting thing about this is that it pretty much is the origin of the Hulk prior to the publication of the Incredible Hulk comics. A Russian scientist is coming to the States with secret documents. When he gets off the plane, he and his American contacts are attacked by KGB assassins. He ends up escaping into a nuclear test range, and the radiation turns this brilliant nuclear scientist into a mindless powerful beast. So it does really echo the original comic book origins of the Incredible Hulk, but it looks like they had very limited equipment. It's got to be deliberate that they've shot it so that you cannot see people's lips as they're speaking. Everything is dubbed over, which makes me question whether or not they actually had microphones that they could use on set for the vast majority of the filming. They just were dubbing everything It's so awkward in the way it's shot. It's only 54 minutes, but if you do choose to watch it, that's 54 minutes of your life that you will never get back. Now, we've got three movies that were coming in at one and a half stars out of five. The Wild Ride from 1960 was directed by Harvey Berman. It was used as the action entry because it's in an action movie pack. 
It's 59 minutes long and the action comes in near the end. The interesting part about it, or the only notable part really, is that it is a very early acting role for Jack Nicholson, who's in the lead. He's a rebellious teen who, you know, is out there, causes car accidents, one of which is fatal for a police officer who was involved. And it's only when a bunch of the teenagers end up dead and not the full-grown adults end up dead that the other teens recognize that, yes, this is not the way to live their lives. It's just not a good film. It's just flat-out boring. There's 10 minutes of setup, and then 40 minutes of completely repetitive and redundant footage just reinforcing what we learned in the first 10 minutes. And then the last 10 minutes is when we actually get to the action in the, you know, amateur drag race. So the second film that I gave a one and a half star review to was The Woman Condemned. That's one that falls into the crime category. This one is notable in the fact that we've got a movie directed by a woman from 1934 with some strong female characters. My original Letterboxd review reads, A radio star takes an indefinite vacation, appearing to be the victim of blackmail, and is found dead in her apartment. A private investigator is called in, but shares little or no information with anyone, including the reporter she is forced to marry. That's the setup from the first 22 minutes of a 61-minute film. This is a movie with potential that is squandered. It deserves credit for some well-directed scenes from an early female director, even if she didn't get her own name in the credits, being listed as Mrs. Wallace Reed. But there are just too many absurdities in the script that need to be accepted to be truly enjoyable. Furthermore, any mystery should provide enough information for the viewer to deduce the real conclusion when the detectives do, but that doesn't happen here. Ultimately unsatisfying, when a rewrite into a 90-minute film could have improved it dramatically. So yeah, when I talk about absurdities, the female private investigator is hired and brought in. They don't reveal to the audience that the private investigator is a female cut next to someone who's trying to break into an apartment. And a reporter in the room steps forward and says, oh, this is my fiance. That's my apartment. She was just trying to come in and play a prank on me. The judge already knows that this reporter has been lying to him and checks none of these facts because they're all wrong. And when he says, okay, she's your fiance and she's been doing these practical jokes. Well, then you need to smarten her up. She needs the strong influence of a man. We'll just marry you right here, right now. And no point does the woman say none of this is true and that she's a private investigator who was hired to gather information about what's going on in that apartment. She just ends up marrying the guy. It's just, there's, a, like I said, a few scenes with very competent direction, but the script just does not work on so many levels. The third one-and-a-half-star review was the one I used for the war genre. It's Black Dragons, starring Bela Lugosi. It's only 64 minutes. And my original review of this one states, a stateside spy thriller released just after the United States joined World War II. Dinner guests of a doctor turn up dead at the ends of Japanese daggers, but we don't completely understand why until very late in the runtime. Lugosi knows his lines, but neither he nor any of his castmates, including Clayton Moore of the Lone Ranger fame, are able to overcome a weak script and bland direction. Ultimately, it's not worth your time. It's just trying to be a suspense thriller, but the only way they can maintain the suspense is by not revealing what there might be suspense about. Otherwise, the mystery would be far too obvious because it's so cliched to the viewers. So they just try to hide the fact that there is a mystery instead, which just plain makes it boring. 
And I think that boring films are the worst kinds of films. I gave a single two-star review for the adventure category. It's the Tarzan the Ape Man from 1932. That's 100 Minutes starring Johnny Weissmuller, who was not an actor so much as an Olympic-level swimmer. So I found it got off to a good start. It's got a strong female lead, and there's a number of setups that were borrowed by King Kong the following year because they are clearly effective. There's good casting. There's a lot of stock footage here, but that's forgivable for budgetary concerns. And the effects seem obvious now, but they would have been progressive for its day. But what I have a hard time with is possibly an accurate reflection of the book, which I haven't read. But there's so much explicit judgment of characters based solely on skin color. Plus, the filming looks like they were actually injuring the elephants in the stampede. And I just found that that destroyed my ability to enjoy the film. Now, when we get to the three-star reviews, those are a little more plentiful. The first one is a film from a genre you don't normally enjoy. I'm not a huge fan of romantic comedies, so for this one, I took 50 First Dates from 2004. It's an Adam Sandler-Drew Barrymore team-up, which my fiancé really enjoyed, and which I was open to having seen the pair of them work well on The Wedding Singer. But I was enough of a fan of the music that was such a big part of that film that that would have overcome some of the issues I normally had with that genre. Now, this one is a little bit odd. It's kind of like Memento, in which Drew Barrymore's character completely forgets everything prior to the day of a car accident. So every day she thinks it's, you know, months and months ago. And her father and brother have been going to great pains to keep her happy by trying to hide this information from her. But things like expired car registrations and huge printings of one newspaper are throwing that out of whack. Now, Adam Sandler's character recognizes this, and he eventually does grow as a person. He's uh, very much a player at the start, just, you know, picks a woman he wants to sleep with and tells her whatever she needs to hear to make that happen, and then breaks it off in a way that kind of hides his true nature from them, so she leaves with a positive memory rather than a negative one. So definitely not a, a noble or likable character at the start of the film you know, since so much of his life is just based on outright lies. I do find, though, in the long term, he recognizes that, no, she's something special. He wants her in his life for the long term. Her father and brother have an issue with that because, you know, they're not okay with one-night stands, and any relationship with her, as far as they're concerned, is a series of one-night stands. But instead of her having a bad day where she recognizes there's a problem, Adam Sandler's character decides to try a different take and convinces them of this because in spite of things, his her family does realize that he makes her happy. So they actually all grow into better people. I, there's not a specific reason I can pick out for why they're doing that, but they do. So I also found it was much more subdued than a lot of the early Adam Sandler comedies that kind of turned me off of his comedy style. So yeah, I actually did enjoy that much more than I expected to. For the category, a film you did not expect to enjoy from a genre you love, I watched Suicide Squad for the first time. And this, I found, had, again, a lot of wasted potential. So they had some decent casting, 
The famous standout, of course, is Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn. She did nail that role. It's taken a lot of flack because Will Smith is essentially playing Deadshot as Will Smith. Well, there's a little more subtlety to it, but not as much as we'd like. There's a very plain villain. There's a big battle. We've got a brief introduction of the Flash and Batman at the beginning and sort of recaps of how they got here. Although I did find the Ezra Miller Flash scene annoying because I saw this after seeing Justice League and they don't really line up very well. With Justice League, he's an inexperienced hero, and here he's already brought some of these guys in. And of course, the big talking point is Jared Leto's Joker, which I'm not as down on as others are. I mean, I don't enjoy this interpretation of the Joker. That's not the kind of Joker I want to see. But we've seen a number of incarnations of the Joker, and the most recent live-action incarnation was Heath Ledger's Oscar-winning performance. Prior to that, the live-action Joker we had was Jack Nicholson's Oscar-nominated performance. In between, we had most notably Mark Hamill voice-acting the Joker to just phenomenal degree. On Batman the Animated Series, on TV, we've had some really strong Jokers. So that's not saying that I'm okay with this interpretation of the Joker, but it is saying that with that parade in recent history and in recent memory, I get why they decided to try and go a completely different way with the Joker and find a new take. And I will give them credit for taking the Joker in a different direction than we've seen, but still have him as a villain who's motivated by causing chaos and destruction. So, again, I'm not saying it's an invalid interpretation, it's just one I don't personally care for. But not one I'm as down on as others, because I... I can understand why they went to such different degrees. Now, part of this was actually going through the Planet of the Apes films, some of which were viewings for the first time, some of which were not. So used in my 1970 to 1979 entry, I went with Beneath the Planet of the Apes. This one was a rewatch, and in fact, watching this the first time is what kind of turned me off the Apes sequels. The first one is fantastic. The second one I found just goes in very different directions and just basically gets weird. So it's not a terrible movie. It just goes further and further in that direction and just basically wipes things out. I found it got a little bit boring. I found that it sort of undid some of the issues with the first one where mankind hadn't wiped themselves out. They were still there and actually had powers, which might be able to bring them back on top, which to me seemed to undermine the message of the original. I've heard that Charlton Haston only did it because he was under the impression that after this, with the way this ended, there's no way they could keep going. So he was there to say, yeah, they're going to make a sequel no matter what. I will agree to do this sequel because that will end all sequels and the first film will finally stand pretty much on its own, which is, of course, not what happened. Because we also have Battle for the Planet of the Apes, which was the fifth film in there. I also gave it three stars. This is here on the list from the viewing challenge because it also has a female writer. So that was one of the three entries from that category. And I did find it's a very different film. They'd actually use time travel to kind of do a prequel era, but we could see that they're rewriting history in this because the history as related in film three does not line up with what we see in film five, but the differences have to be deliberate. Instead of having Aldo as the first 
ape to speak. Aldo is part of the crew, but Caesar is the first ape to speak. So the offspring of the characters who traveled back in time in number three causes the plan of the apes to start to come around sooner, and he sort of controls the future enough to reduce Aldo's hostile influence. And then the third three-star film I watched is the 1923 version of The Hunchback of Notre Dame, which was the silent era film with Lon Chaney in the title role. And it was good. We have a strong female lead, which again is rare for the 1920s, but may just be a side effect of the source material they chose to adapt. So it's not so much convincing Hollywood to have a female lead as convincing Hollywood, no, this is the story people love, let's leave that part alone. And as Silent Films goes, it was well done. The makeup is very good for 1923. If you are open to watching Silent Films, and particularly an adaptation of The Hunchback of Notre Dame, you should check that one out. Now, the next couple are rewatches. I use Thor The Dark World for the 2010 to present category and Star Trek Generations as the science fiction entry. You're going to hear about a lot of Marvel movies because we were rewatching the Marvel Cinematic Universe for my fiance's first time viewings as we're leading up to Avengers Infinity War. Star Trek Generations was a rewatch that I did following along with the Mission Log podcast. Highly recommended, by the way. And both of those were rated three and a half stars. Now, other three and a half star reviews that I've got here were first time watches. There's The Hitchhiker from 1953. It's a film noir directed by Ida Lupino. It stars Edmund O'Brien, who also starred in DOA, as well as Frank Lovejoy, William Tellman. It's fairly short, but it is a well directed film. You can feel trapped and claustrophobic in wide open deserts because of the way this was shot and written and acted. It's basically a, a, a decent script that rises above that level because of the effectiveness of the directing and acting. So another one that's well worth checking out. Also public domain, so it's easy to track down legally. Now My Favorite Wife was a romantic comedy with Cary Grant in which a man has his first wife declared dead because she's been lost at sea for seven years remarries, and then his first wife comes back alive and well. So then you get the hijinks while he's trying to decide which wife he wants to end up with in the long term. So again, there's some sexist hijinks that only played because it's a film from 1940, but it could have been much, much worse. Now for the Alfred Hitchcock entry, I picked a Hitchcock film I hadn't seen yet, specifically The Ring, which was an early romantic drama. It's not so much a suspense as it is a story about two boxers who are fighting for the affections of a woman who is more attracted to their status than to the actual persons. So she kind of aims her affections at whoever is winning. So not bad. There's some early signs of the director Hitchcock would become with subtleties. Right? We've got a really beat up round one sign, but a absolutely pristine round two sign, for example, showing that yeah, this boxer who's doing the, the tour circuit hasn't lost a first round yet. And it's got to go with the subtle visual cues, because this was from the silent era. It's also public domain, as are all of Hitchcock's silent films. The last of the three-and-a-half-star reviews was for the historical drama Matahari. So Matahari actually stars Greta Garbo. It's 
a semi-fictionalized account of the life of Mata Hardy. She was found guilty of being a spy and was executed, but it may not have been clear that she actually was a spy during World War I. Whereas this makes it clear that she starts off as a German spy, but falls in love with a member of the Allied forces and tries to turn her life around and become a better person. There are some very good moments in it. Greta Garbo is clearly the star, and you understand why she was such a star in her era. The direction by George Fitzmaurice is pretty much average for a 1931 film, and there's some constraints by the need to conform to at least what was publicly known about Matahari. There's a lot that wasn't known, so there were a number of blanks they could fill in. We've also got Lionel Barrymore, Louis Stone, and a few other stars of the era. So I wouldn't rush out and see it, but see it if it's convenient. Now next is the four-star reviewed films. One of them is actually from the films produced out of France category. I used Asterix, The Mansions of the Gods, which I saw on Netflix here in Canada. That was actually delightful. It wasn't terribly deep, but it was perfectly enjoyable and easily recommended. It is in French, so watch with the subtitles on. But like I said, I found it on Netflix in Canada, so it may very well be on Netflix in your regions. It really does capture the spirit of the graphic novels quite nicely. Another four-star review and first-time viewing is for another female director entry, specifically Fast Times at Ridgemont High. It was the first time I'd seen this teen sex comedy from 1982, directed by Amy Heckerling whose work I'd previously enjoyed in Clueless, which obviously came much later, close to 15 years later, in fact. But this was the breakout roles for Sean Penn, Jennifer Jason Lee, Judge Reinhold, Phoebe Cates. We've got Ray Walston, who was not in his breakout role. He'd already been my favorite Martian. We've got Vincent Schiavelli. We've got Forrest Whitaker. If you pay very, very close attention, you can catch a brief glimpse of Nicolas Cage in his first on-screen role as, well, just a guy working in a burger shop, he's actually credited as Nicholas Coppola in this film before he decided he wasn't going to just ride the coattails of Frank Francis Ford Coppola and that he was actually going to make his own way into his own name, so he borrowed the name of his favorite comic book character, Luke Cage, to pick his last name. You've got Eric Stoltz, really... This was a well-made movie, well-written, and incredibly well-cast. So there's no question why so many of these cast members went on to have such great careers later. If you're a fan of that teen sex comedy genre, it's worth checking out. Now the next four-star review was for a film you have previously seen but didn't enjoy. And for that one, I actually used Star Trek Nemesis. Again, that one was obviously a rewatch, otherwise it wouldn't be part of that category. But the first time through, I had first watched it on DVD. I was coming in when I was, you know, hoping for a return to sort of that Star Trek Next Generation era because I wasn't terribly impressed with the Trek we had on TV at the time. And I came out, you know, not liking what they did with Data, not liking the sort of to heck with the Prime Directive, let's take this dune buggy out action sequence at the beginning. There are definite problems with this. And Tom Hardy plays Shinzon, a clone of Captain Picard, who is taking over the Romulan Empire. Rewatching it, I found 
not knowing what was supposed to be happening, not knowing the contents of that three-hour script that got cut down to this two-hour film, or, well, 117 minutes, so it might as well be two hours. But yeah, Stuart Baird is known for being a pretty ruthless editor and often being called in to edit films for length. He can make them as coherent as possible under a given runtime. So he cut out about a third of the footage that was in here, some before filming, some after. But the raw script would have been over three hours long. And I found not coming in with those expectations, not coming in having read a leaked version of the full script first, because I originally saw this on DVD, and seeing it fresh and not knowing what potential was lost, not knowing what was going on with Wesley Crusher, Coming in a lot more blind and able to judge the film on its own terms, I found I enjoyed it a lot more than I did the first time. So I'm happy I actually revisited that one, because I did genuinely enjoy it more the second time. The next four-star review was for the Directed by Stanley Kubrick category. I watched the last Kubrick film that I had never seen, specifically Paths of Glory, starring Kirk Douglas as a military officer who was forced to give his soldiers impossible orders from higher up, when they realized that trying to follow those orders would mean a suicide mission and stopped, they ended up being court-martialed and judged for treason, for failure to follow orders, and some of these men just had to die as scapegoats. And it's a very powerful anti-war film, and one of Kubrick's better ones, easy to recommend. The next two four-star reviews are also Star Trek films. I use Star Trek Insurrection as the film from the United States of America and Star Trek First Contact as the 1990-1999 criterion. Those were both directed by Jonathan Frakes, who is probably better known for playing Will Riker in the films. First Contact is good if you want a Star Trek film that's more about action than about exploring ethics and society and what it means to be people and what it takes to be a good human being and a good Federation member. Insurrection was often slammed for being, you know, just a really good episode on TV for, you know, being nicknamed Star Trek date movie, as though it's a bad thing that it could appeal to couples. I enjoyed it when I saw it on opening night in the theater. This was the second time I saw it, and I enjoyed it again. This, of all the next-gen films, does the best job of examining ethical dilemmas, which is, I think, at the core of when Star Trek does Star Trek best. That is what stands out. That's what sets Star Trek apart from Star Wars. Star Wars provides the best space action for your, for your buck, at least of the space franchises, where Star Trek is better at examining the human condition. And I think Insurrection is unfairly maligned. It does that well, and maybe that's why it felt like an episode of the TV series, because they weren't trying to make an action film. They were trying to actually say something about what it means to be a good human being. So for the next two four-star films, and the last two that are the four-star ratings, the directed by John Ford category has How Green Was My Valley, released in 1941 and winner of Best Picture for that year. It's a biopic about a boy growing up in Ireland and what happens with child labor laws and working in the mines. It's a decent view of Ireland at the time. And then the other four-star review was for The Blues Brothers, the comedy from 1980, with some pretty impressive car chases, some great blues music, and R&B stars. 
as well as, of course, Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi. I enjoyed it quite a bit, which was nice because I don't think I enjoyed Blue Brothers 2000 well enough to even finish watching the whole thing. And now we're into the four and a half star reviews, and we've got a few of those. So the Russian film entry was Solaris from 1972. And that I really, I I was really engaged and engrossed in it. I'm not entirely sure how I feel about it because it's not a film that I think I can fully digest on first viewing. So I do need to go back and watch it again. But it's a Tartakovsky film, which isn't aping 2001 A Space Odyssey, but is in line with 2000 Space Odyssey in terms of the pacing, the filmmaking, and the amount of thinking you have to do to really understand what you're seeing and what you think of what you're seeing. So I don't completely know how I feel about it, but I do know I need to watch it again and will enjoy it even for processing what I'm seeing. Uh, Another four and a half star film is for the film I hadn't seen yet but wanted to category. I watched Particle Fever, a 2013 documentary about the LHC and the search for the Higgs boson. Now, this felt a little bit personal because I did recognize some of the people on screen having done my master's thesis, actually doing analysis of an Atlas test run from the year 2000. Yes, that was before the LHC turned on. It was quality control of the parts to make sure they're responding as anticipated with the existing beam lines and the existing accelerator back in 2000. So this actually gives a very good look at what happened during the search for the Higgs boson. The 1960-1969 entry, also at four and a half stars out of five, was Planet of the Apes. This is the 1968 original, and most definitely not the Tim Burton-directed remake. That is one of the sci-fi classics, I would say. It just hurts a little bit because it doesn't age that well, but it's got the Rod Serling script behind it. It's starting from Pierre Boulle's very good novel. It's got that ending, which I'm going to try not to spoil. I kind of spoiled it a little bit, talking about some of the sequels, but really, it's an ending so famous it's been spoiled even by the cover art these days. The next two four-and-a-half-star reviews were rewatches, and they were both included for the female writer or co-writer categories. There's the original Guardians of the Galaxy from 2015, and Rise of the Planet of the Apes. The new Planet of the Apes trilogy, I ended up watching all three of them this year, although the other two were not for the movie challenge. They are all worth watching. In fact, of all the Planet of the Apes movies, I've, I've now seen them all. Rise, Dawn, War, the original five, the Tim Burton remake. I would say that the second film, Beneath the Planet of the Apes, which I gave three stars to, is probably the second worst of the bunch, the Tim Burton film being the worst of the bunch. So all the rest are at least worth seeing once. And the original is, of course, worth rewatching multiple times. Now, the last two films that I watched for this were both five-star reviews. There's the film you've already seen but want to watch again and the superhero genre category for The Avengers and Iron Man 3. Iron Man 3 being my favorite of the three Iron Man films. So those were part of our MCU rewatch and they round that out. So that's a slightly different make me watch it with my short version of the 32 films that I have seen so far for the 
Bureau 42 Movie Viewing Challenge for 2018. And that also turned into a bit of a longer episode than we're used to. I'd be fairly open to doing another one of these style episodes once I've gotten through all 52 movies for the viewing challenge of the year. So if that's the kind of thing you'd like to hear again, let me know at bureau42podcasts at gmail.com. And please go to bureau42.com itself and check out the list challenge on the right-hand side and see if you'd like to participate. Thank you for listening.